This podcast is recommended for mature listeners. It may contain descriptions of violence, thematic content, and immature language. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is mature listeners with Lynn and Shane Hello and welcome to Mature Listeners, a eulogy for the Vertigo Comics line. I'm Neil, Shane is currently disposed of the in variety, and we've got a returning guest here, John Leavitt. John? Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty well. And uh, for this episode, we're covering Grant Morrison's The Mystery Play and Sebastian O. Two somewhat similar but very divergent comics from the early 90s. And uh, which which one would you like to start in on first? Uh, I'm a firm believer of desserts up front <laughs> level of podcasting. So I want to slam right into Sebastian O because we are talking fops. We're talking dandies. We're talking macaronis. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. A, a very, a very fun comic. I, I, once again, I, I only seem to come on episodes in which it's like, ah, oh, my old foe, pederastry. Ah, <laughs> oh, I, I hadn't, hadn't even noticed, but, but yes, that, oof. Yeah. This is starting to feel would, would targeted. Would you like to describe the, <laughs> would you like to describe the plot of Sebastian O? Um, okay, so Sebastian O takes place in a sort of proto-steampunk setting. Um, I should probably mention that, you know, I, I was wondering why I hadn't heard of this Morrison title, and I, I initially thought, it's like, well, you know, they write so much. And I'm like, you get a couple pages in, you're like, oh, that's why I've never heard of this. Even though I think it was one of the launch titles for Vertigo. I, I think Vertigo would have started a, a few years before this, but this is certainly in this sort of early Vertigo wave. Yeah, all right. So, um, it stars the eponymous, 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 never mind, uh, Sebastian O, a assassin for hire slash decadent fop who has a mansion full of secret machines and passageways and is also an occultist who is being pursued by uh lord lavender it's yeah it's one of those books um <laughs> who needs his specialized knowledge that he developed as part of a revolutionary cabal of writers and engineers in order to make um a victorian oculus rift uh, basically yeah he's he's trying to do ready player one <laughs> yeah he he makes a queen victoria deep fake <laughs> And and a bit more than that, he seems to have turned the entire world into Ready Player One, uh, given the, the the sort of ambiguous ending, where Using he predicts that power. a deep fog, a deep fog will envelop London at 10 p.m. That I can I can predict that, and that is proof of the control that I exert over this world that I have created. And at the end of the comic, fog rolls in at 10:01. Bum bum bum. Uh, yeah, I don't really like. Uh, okay, let's just get this out of the way for for the first. Like, this is just a pile of references to other things. Um, so much so that it really feels like Morrison just sat down and wrote every like late Victorian thing or idea he could remember from school, like the word animosis, and just strung a narrative around it. Yeah, yeah, and it. Uh, earlier in the podcast, we covered his work Sea Guy, which is sort of like a version of this, but more American. And instead of the world being Ready Player One, it's Disneyland. Disney had taken over the world and turned it into a theme park. And these oh, are so very now. similar vibes. They're both very uh, heavily like adventure story-ish. And it's interesting to see how... That sort of approach looks a decade before with a more limited set of references to work around. Yeah, and it's heavily pastiched. It might be useful just to go through it like plot beat by plot beat. There's there's the here's like a visual problem I had because I actually quite liked the line work in Sebastian O. I thought it like it recalled um, 
period illustration very well, and it often gets the composition right for um, yeah yeah uh, steve yole's penciling in this is is very good and john workman is a fantastic letterer as always yeah and like they often reflect they often reference like fairly famous um compositions and um i'm about to become incredibly pedantic right now because Seb- please do question o is clearly based on aubrey beardsley noted victorian illustrator uh, and i have like one of his prints behind me as i talk like it was a very formative <laughs> influence on me uh, as an artist, and so like I got all the visual references they were getting. Although the thing that frustrates me about it is, one, it often feels like they're just seventy-five percent of the way there, and I don't know it was just like the standards for comic design weren't as good or weren't as advanced. Like you look at this compared to something like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I will go into later. It's oh, like Kevin O'Neill is. He he's working at his own level in that book. That that is that is Hall of Fame mode level penciling, right? And even but like, even like the throwaway designs or the pistache designs in that book are just like amazing dead on recreations of the period and the tone. The problem is that Sebastian O himself is visually based on the actual appearance of Aubrey Beardsley, and it's a weird looking face. <laughs> And you can tell it's kind of hard to draw. Very much so. And and also, like, his design is is weird because he's supposed to be this big foppish, dandy, you know, extravagant dude. Literally dude. That's the meaning of the word dude. But, like, he's dressed very plainly. And he has, like, the weird ascot situation going on that I'm not getting. I think that's a reference to a famous Dory and uh, Oscar Wilde photograph. But... Uh, the thing about Wild is like Wild was an, one of those annoying briefcase to school guys in that he dressed in the fashions of like 50 years ago. Like he was Jacob Reese mogging it the entire time. Like he really doesn't understand why people don't wear sc- uh, le- uh, you know knee length leggings anymore. <laughs> oh, that Jacob Reese mogging it is is a phrase I will have to incorporate into my vocabulary more often. <laughs> And uh, I, I was reminded, like, mostly when I was reading this, I was reminded of, one, everything that was being referenced, because most of Sebastian O's like, quips are just, like, slightly rephrased Oscar Wilde phrase, uh, quips or lines from his work. Like, I just, like, I was just checking them off one by one. And the other one is, like, thinking, like, you know, Lucifer Box, a story in which the premise is, what if Oscar Wilde was James Bond, has already been a comic book and a book. And it, it just does it does the material so much. I had a, like a hard time sympathizing with the character of Sebastian because he just seems um, mean and unpleasant. Very much so, <laughs> but not like in a fun over the top way, but in a actually like quite cruel way. I, one of his lines in this comic is how I detest the poor. <laughs> yeah, no, like there's a way of like writing that, like to be like, oh, he's sufficiently villainous, but it, he no. Um, anyway, like. Going back to the beginning, and again, I'm going to be insufferable this enti- during this entire segment, um, because I actually have a published story that is incredibly similar to this. <laughs> and the entire time I was reading it, I'm like, yeah, um, I've seen this kind of material done better by me. Because <laughs> I-, I wrote a story in which like, the twist was that um, you're not actually reading an Oscar Wilde story, you're reading an account of people trapped in an Oscar Wilde story because they're historical recreationists in like this sort of virtual reality era thing. But unfortunately the machine is overheating and it's constantly repeating itself. So the the village, but, <laughs> but with more Oscar Wilde. Yeah. And it was all like Oscar Wilde references and illusions. And they, they were being tormented by an evil AI that demanded absolute like period perfection above them. So they could never slip up. <laughs> It was I have no ma- I have no mouth, but I must scream in florals. <laughs> I have no mouth, but I must dab the corner of it with a handkerchief. Exactly. Oh, I should have used that as my logline. Damn it. <laughs> One thing I would like to say before we get into the plot of the comic itself is in in the version that we read, I it includes the advertisements of the time. So right after the cover to the first issue. 
there's an advertisement for the Coneheads movie, and that sort of set the tone for me. Yeah, I, I as, as soon as I saw like the ads in it, I'm like, oh, we're going to have to talk about that because that's really taken me places. <laughs> uh, and like every time something like weird would come up, like the, oh no, more pederastry, I would keep thinking, well, it was a different time. It was the time of the Coneheads. <laughs> back, look, back when the Coneheads were on, Nonsing was considered harmless fun. <laughs> <sighs> we're going to like pay for all this frivolity when we get to mystery play. Yeah. yeah. So, so like right out at front, um, it starts with him in jail. No, Bedlam. Bedlam Asylum. And you're already introduced to the fact that this is a sort of Victorian world, but they somehow have elements of modern technology and also the as many like weird Victorian slang terms Morrison can remember crammed into three pages with the guards. Quite. Yeah, they're just like, ah, it's Victorian Baz. Yes, the uh the the Bobby putting his hand on a uh, palm reading screen, <laughs> a fingerprint reading m- panel. <laughs> I'm not sure why my mind leaped to palm reading. It's not like it's telling his future. Well, also like in the the materials leading up to the story, like there's all this occultist stuff, and you're thinking like, oh, it's it's going to be a, a magic thing, but no, they've got helicopters. They're not even magic helicopters. Yes, this is, this is much more science fiction than it is fantasy. And um, anyway, he he escapes from Bedlam. You find out he had been caught in what was very clearly supposed to be a fictionalization of the Cleveland Street scandal. Um, that's the one that uh, actually Wilde got caught up in and quite a number of like well-up royals in which it turned out uh, they were all just enjoying the pleasure of uh, certain young men. Oof. Yeah, telegram boys. And I do mean boy. And that is unfortunately a recurring theme in this. I I would like to note that he escapes from Bedlam by basically pulling a Metal Gear Solid 3, where (laughs) he hides in his cell so that when the guards look through the people, they're like, hey, he's not in there. Let's open the door and go in. And then he takes one of them out and walks out in his uniform. Yeah, it's, um, he doesn't really, he's not a clever assassin. Like, again, I I just wrote down in my notes, Assassin Creed nonce. <laughs> but, like, he doesn't, he doesn't, like, devise clever plots or plans. He just, just shoots people. Yeah, yeah, he, he's very much a, uh, a, a simple way out. Yeah, I'm just like, that, this is a two-star hitman board. Come on. <laughs> uh. And as someone who's not very good at Hitman, I, I, I sympathize with that. Oh, you mean you're not me waiting 30 minutes for someone to accidentally walk by and pick up the wrong poisoned glass? <laughs> or as my husband said, John, you're a little too good at these. What? I'm not plotting anything. <laughs> so yes, he, he, goes, he, he leaves prison and goes to his home alone Batman manor. Which was designed by, like, decadent aristocrats in order to have more interesting orgies. It's literally a line. Oh, yes. The house of Sebastiano stands in the heart of Bloomsbury, its walled garden deterring the curious eye. The house was designed and constructed by Master Swift's craftsmen, now dead, their secrets long lost. It was built in 1780 by the scandalous Lord Carhay, whose defiance of conventional morality outraged London society. A diabolist and member of Sir Francis Dashwood's infamous Hellfire Club, Lord Carhay devised the eccentric architecture of the house as a means to add spice to his notorious orgies. Rumor had it that he even maintained a blasphemous zoo of human beings in the bowels of the house, and these he used for his own pleasure and occult experiments. Heaven had its revenge, however, when Carhay and his mistress, a debauched nun named Yves Villon, died in a stupendous and mysterious fire in a small town near Pisa in Italy. Yeah, did, did, did you catch it? Did you catch it? Swiss craftsman. It's a big cuckoo clock. Oh my god! <laughs> there's just, there, there, there's a lot of this, like, world-building stuff that never pays off later. 
Yeah, and <laughs> I, I found it kind of refreshing that it was just throwing out these s weird little details and never following up on them. <laughs> Yeah. Or like they'd be more, this would be more suited to one of those scientific romances. <laughs> Again, it, it just feels like someone just went through and went like, okay, what do I remember from the decadent period? Okay, yes. Yeah. Uh, he arrives back to his um, army of loyal servants, and we get our first we get our first real wild drop, which he says like he has to take as much time as he needs to perfect his toilet. And I'm like, okay, that's a direct reference to Dorian Gray. When after he uh, kills Basil, he says he spends an enormous amount of time picking out the right ring. And uh, okay, yeah, I get what you're doing. Go on. Yes. Uh, a line that particularly stood out to me since I read this after the mystery play is, it seems almost criminal to remove my whiskers. I look indefinably Christ-like. Having said that, I refuse to martyr myself for one second longer. Yeah. Well, and also, like, We'll get this. We'll come to this because it comes out of the way. But obviously, his name's Sebastian after Saint Sebastian, who is or was, you know, a kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge in the nose symbol among uh, gay men, especially in uh, the aristocracy. Because hey, Saint Sebastian's a, a really easy way to draw like a naked young man writhing, <laughs> and like any uh, painting of Saint Sebastian even shows up at some point. Um, again, it's just, you know, what, what are things I remember from art history that are also extremely obvious? But what's not obvious is when the police catch on to him and he unleashes his cuckoo clock house on them. I, I, I was not kidding when I likened it to Home Alone. It's... Uh... Home Alone is trapped. This is more like that Halloween episode of The Simpsons where it's like, do not touch lever. Well, when am I ever going to be here next? Yes, and then they go into a room where all the furniture's on the ceiling. <laughs> no, the stairs turned into a slide. It's like going to the vault room of the Adams Family movie. <laughs> and and I like how the effect of having the furniture on the ceiling is just such a shock that it sent that it gets one of the officers <laughs> nauseous. Oh, a room that's upside down. I've never seen anything like this before. Well, and I also thought, like, that could be a reference to Anton LaVey because he had this thing about how you could, like, drive people mad with disturbing architecture and, like, make rooms at weird angles. Uh, something about trapezoid. Like, trapezoidal rooms are very, he said, like, psychologically uncomfortable. Anton LaVey's House of Leaves? <laughs> yeah, basically. So, yes, uh, I live in a clockwork house of leaves, which I use to um, imprison police officers and then shoot them. <laughs> like, I, see, the reason that that struck me as particularly funny is that the, 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 the image of the upside down room, what that brings to mind to me is the bad animated adaptation of the killing joke, which replaces the bit at the end with just Batman and the Joker fighting in an upside-down room. Yeah, I'm just like, I, I, I just got to that page and I went, it's a deep sigh, comics are a visual medium. <laughs> oh. Oh, and um, the title of this first chapter is The Yellow Book, which is sort of a nested reference to you know the yellow wallpaper and the king in yellow and yada, 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 yada. Quite. And as you mentioned, he anticlimactically just shoots the officer once he is done freshening up with with a chilled a chilled revolver i'm not like i what would be the aesthetic pleasure of a chilled revolver how would that be more refined because I'm, I'm thinking of like the, the truly nuts like fops and dandies of that era one of which was um he's his term was lord gaga so he's very difficult to google now but um <laughs> But he was just like this extremely eccentric, like third son who was never meant to inherit everything. But then like everyone died in World War One, and he got like basically all of Essex. And he decided to do things like turn his pal turn his ancestral house into like this gigantic, never-ending theater show, or like cover his quote-unquote wife's nude body with jewels, saying she was much more beautiful this way, and. His refinement was he finally got a motor car, but he thought that exhaust was uh, too disgusting, so he added chemicals to it to make it perfumed and pink. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
the catalytic converter of the late 1800s. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he, <laughs> and I'm like, if you're, if you're going to do it and like, that's not fiction. That's a guy who existed. Like if you're going to be this over the top, you can't just have a chilled gun. You have to like find some, I mean, we've all watched Hannibal. You need to have a refined artistic sense of murder. <laughs> I thought he was going to like trap him in the house somehow or like t- turn him into like an ornament. But like, no, he just shoots him with a cold gun. Uh, like we said, not a particularly clever assassin. <laughs> yeah, well, it is It is kind of James Bond. He just like goes in, shoots someone and leaves. He's a stupid policeman. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so... While this is going on, we're introduced to our villain, Lord Lavender, and his nephew. Because, again, it is weird that when you're referencing, like, a genre and an artistic movement that was, like, very much full of queer men and women, there are no—we'll get to it, but, like, there's a lesbian couple and a pederast. Yeah, that that is a, a a sort of interesting omission. Yeah, and then like interesting um choice. Uh, I get that you're trying to not make your hero likable, but having his best friend be an open child molester is a little weird way to approach that. I mean, because like he uses the word Uranian a few times, and I'm like, did did you not know that specifically means like sex with teenagers? I, I I was confused by those choices. Let me put it that way. I, I agree. And the less said about it, the better. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, well, I, I, I thought it was weird that it's like uncle and nephew. And I'm just like, really? We're doing that? Well, I get, well, we did just pass a conehead ad. I guess it was a different time. <laughs> uh, we were all too busy playing the Atari Lynx and waiting for the coneheads to really think about the... <laughs> implications of the word uranian right moving on and uh oh queen elizabeth is introduced by saying no we are not amused and i'm like okay i'll give you that oh queen victoria sorry queen victoria (laughs) (laughs) no it's it's not heart of empire queen elizabeth isn't immortal different comic different comic (laughs) uh but but yes uh this particular one the first issue ends with the introduction of what i can only describe as a spooky Mad Hatter? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I did think it's like, is this trying to introduce Alice into it? Because, yeah. And his, like, what are they called? The Roaring Boys? The, the evil street gang that Lord Lavender controls and uses for assassination, which it seems to be full of just the Mad Hatter, a quote-unquote savage, and a street thug. Anyway, it ends with a chase to the sewers and the the evil Mad Hatter, who you can tell he's he's mad because he takes the teeth of a messenger boy. I, I, yes, I think that and, that and bites the head off a bird. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He uh, has some sort of like loyal army of crows, which he never uses again. You'd think having a loyal army of crow, a crow army, if you will, would be useful in like surveying areas or like following people but no he just bites their heads off i i guess that's why their confrontation was in the sewers yeah. <laughs> an army of oh, crows yeah. isn't useful when you're underground yeah and we we, we get our uh, our next wild reference with the line about being in the gutter uh, which again his quips are just rewrote reworked famous lines from wild and uh interestingly enough the title of the second one is Against Nature, which is the translated title of Husserman's famous novel, A Rebors, in which a man sort of locks himself in his mansion so he can like become even more decadent and removed from the outside world and create his own inter- interior private world, and that'll become important later. Quite. Yeah, that, that's the one where he kills a tortoise by putting too many jewels on it. Wait, I, I'm having trouble uh, picturing that. How- which part of the tortoise is he putting jewels on? Is he the shell? Is he making it too heavy to? Yeah, it gets too heavy to walk around. And the whole idea was supposed to be like this living art object that would travel from room to room. But then eventually, the jewels and gold on it got too heavy and it collapsed. Huh. Victorians, am I right? Quite. 
And, and you mentioned that the birds really don't come into play. They're on the cover of the second issue, and they still don't really come into play. They just, they liked the idea of there being crow army. They just couldn't figure out what to do with it. Anyway, it turns out that uh, Lord Lavender is on the hunt for Sebastian O because he has the secrets to this device. He and his, his sinister cadre of freaks and perverts uh, have developed like a way of creating an artificial world. So he goes and visits this clockwork garden, which is kind of a neat concept. It, it is a neat concept, but the, the context really sort of sours it. Well, yeah, the the guy running it is a uh, pedophiliatic priest with his, like, servant army of nearly naked young boys. It's, uh, it's, it's a choice. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not a good time. <laughs> I, I, I kept, like, rereading thinking, like, surely I missed something. Like, context. No, no, we're just doing that. Okay. And, and again, you know... That seemed to be one of Vertigo's like go-to things to make to establish that they're the mature readers line, and it, it's it's very cheap and and very '90s and something like Morrison would later make fun of. So it was weird to see him. Yeah, it's it, it's certainly a tendency that is not isolated to Morrison comics of the time. Anyway, moving on. Yes, uh, eventually both the priest and his. Uh, assistant are killed by i i really don't have the words to express just like how of the uh, not even of the time this was published but of the time it's set it, it it's like he went back in to like one of those stories from the 1890s plucked out the the savage assassin character and placed it in this comic and like like not, uh, not great like i said last time with uh, Sandman Mystery Theater, it's like just because you're doing a pastiche of uh, maybe some retrograde elements of Pulp Fiction, um, you don't have to recreate that. You can just draw them like normal people. Yes, and, and the part where he appears to lynch this character is ah, it, it's putting it's putting a hat on a hat as far as these uh, elements go. Yeah, and you 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 even hear like. You could hear the defense in the head. It's like, well, these are supposed to be bad characters. I'm like, yeah, but we're spending a lot of time with these people. I'm, I'm not sure I want to I want to spend time with a thuggish assassin who doesn't even dress very well. Because, <laughs> again, like, if you wanted to get, like, real dandied out, you want to be a macaroni about it in this time period... This is just when, like, the first artificial dyes were coming out, and that shit was lurid as hell. Like, the Victorian era, in your mind, should be associated with, like, yellow and black checkered pants and hot pink vests. You sort of see this in, like, the outfits cowboys and American cowboys would buy for themselves when they got really rich. But yeah, what he should be wearing I... at least three different shades of screaming neon green. So, so what you're saying is that if you put Austin Powers in this role, he would be more dressed for the period? Yeah, exactly. In fact, like, the whole Carnaby Street thing was like a deliberate, well, we're going to redo Victorian, but it's not going to be like drab, black-clad uh, black clerks. It's going to be like crazy out of the, uh, uh, crazy out there ruffs and velvets and waistcoats. Uh, you mentioned Carnaby Street. Could you could you go a bit more into that? Oh, uh, the Carnaby Street fashions were the, the emergent fashions of... Uh, six, um, <clears throat> 60s London, which were kind of like pulling on the fact that there was this like rich tradition of Paisley manufacture in uh, in England, and there was this like resurgence of dandyism, and but the emphasis was on like all of these loud, contrasting colors, and you know, nipped in waists and um, extravagant like silk ties and stuff. It was like, now it was, I'm wishing we'd had you on for the Austin Powers episode. There's much less pederasty in those movies. Oh, right? <sighs> but yeah, it's like, and that whole thing, and the fact that like Austin Powers, just like his visual look at least, is probably taken from this old gay pulp novel called The Man from Camp. I, I'm sorry, is, is that really the title? Yeah, The Man from C-A-M-P. And like the whole, you know, the whole 
thing is that he's a secret service. He's a secret service agent, but he's incredibly made up and terribly glam. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was definitely Sounds one of those. amazing. You read it and you definitely get the things like this was being read. This was being written with the idea that people would laugh at this character, but you get the impression that the author doesn't think it's a joke. <laughs> Wouldn't it just be fun if there was this incredibly camp secret agent? Which, again, I think was one of the other working inspirations for the Lucifer Box series, which is just like that, but Edwardian London. And he's a, oh, he's society's, po- he's a society portrait painter in that one. Oh, nice. So it's really Very more interesting. Like, it's, it's really more like what if John Singer Sargent was secretly James Bond? I, for our audience, could you give a bit of context on John Singer Sargent? Oh, John Singer Sargent was an American, although he lived his entire life uh, abroad. A uh, portrait painter, a uh, society portrait painter, um, very, very famous, extremely gay. Uh, they always leave out like his his private studies in the note in the art history books, which are all just men fucking. Uh, <laughs> and you know he did. Um, you've probably seen it that famous painting, Madame X, at the uh, of the very tall, very pale woman in the red in the um, sleeveless black gown which caused a scandal and caused the woman's name to be removed from the painting because when he had painted it one of the straps was loose okay yeah yeah i'm looking it up and i definitely see what you mean i yeah yeah anyway back back to sebastian O. must be (laughs) we've gotten past the part with the pedophile priest in his i Clock garden. Mechanical Epstein garden. <laughs> oh no, it's steampunk Epstein. Get <laughs> <laughs> oh, me a steampunk child. I'm going to hell. <laughs> and and we we get to a, a a pair of characters that are a bit more interesting and certainly less. <laughs> Tied to the seemingly pervasive theme of pederasty. We get um, George, a uh, woman dressed in man's clothing, supposedly, uh, and her helper. What was it? Annette? Winnette? I don't have it down. Anyway, it doesn't matter. She has five lines. The fun thing about them is that they're healthy, all natural, out in the sunshine, not fainting constantly people and the way they get the uh, cops not to bother them is that they say they have uh, a sexual hysteria that causes them to inflict their passions on each other and they don't know if you do come in here you may pass it along to your wives and daughters (laughs) (laughs) she literally just tells him I'm sorry but we have gay COVID Do you want to turn? Do you want your wife and daughters to become down with a terrible case of the gays? Please, we we checked the box for non-contact policing. <laughs> uh, I I would like to to point out the uh, in- incredibly on the nose title for the third issue: "The Queen Is Dead," which is not only a I, I assume more a uh, Smiths reference than. Uh, anything the Smiths might have been referencing with that, uh, but a pretty clear spoiler for the end of the issue in which it's revealed that, yes, the Queen is basically a speaking spell. You're quite good at turning me on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it turns out Lord Lavender had, uh, had, had invented a, or was he using these, all of these technological advances adhered by Sebastian O's friends. The which magic lantern. Yes, the magic lantern, which allows to create like a simulated reality so real you'd never know you were there. Again, steampunk Oculus Rift. And he's been creating like simulations of the queen so that he's actually been ruling the British Empire all along. <laughs> I mean, uh, I- and he implies that he's basically turned England into the Matrix. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just not having like a Victorian matrix with like brass and glass containers, <laughs> like just like hanging off like a chandelier. Chandelier. <laughs> uh, 
the the, the big uh, wall of weapons, and they're all <laughs> very old revolvers and flintlocks. I need scimitars. <laughs> uh, that would have been a fun read. And um, he, he implies that, like he has all that he's already won because he has all the control over the world. And in fact, how do you know you're not in my magic lantern reality now, Mister O? Yes, quite. And like we mentioned, the uh, ambiguous ending with the fog coming in at ten o one instead of ten as predicted, giving a little bit of wiggle room to the end. Dot 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 question mark. Right, and it, again, Sebastian, this you know trained assassin slash gun for hire i guess he he kills him by pushing him off a train <laughs> he just let gravity do the work there like where's the finesse like dude yeah so get, so his kills in this stick, can't get a walking sick sword <laughs> so his kills in this are to to list them out possibly incompletely shoots a man with a chilled revolver shoots a man in the sewer uh Slits a guy's throat, uh, hangs a guy, uh, pushes a guy off a train, and drags the guy that he previously hanged behind a stagecoach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of the opposite of a silent assassin. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's a very low rating at the end. I, I, I do want to say, I, I love the little touch of having the little PDA that Lord Lavender is using to control the queen have this little, like, pick portrait frame bezel around the screen it's very early apple design aesthetics <laughs> uh, see like, lord lavender has the decency to have like a, a cane with a little like knife poking out of it sebastian has no such trickery i know i mean this is a world which has like you know sort of endless possibility for like ludicrous gear gear powered gym crackery like, you could have, like, any kind of ridiculous clockwork-killing method you wanted. And they're just like, no, train. <laughs> it's not even, like, a train, like, like on a bridge, can, on a thing connecting, like, England and France or something. It's like, again, I, I cannot point out, like, how much better this is approached in other media. So if you if you want something like this, just, just go read The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Especially because it ends with... um. Disney being the final boss? <laughs> seems like yeah. irrelevant to our current cultural d discussions. Yeah, or even keeping it to Morrison, read Sea Guy Slaves of Mickey Eye, which Cameron Stewart, I not not someone you should be supporting in 2021, but as as a treatment of this sort of adventure story by Morrison, it's much more complete than uh, Sebastian O really is. Right. And um I'm going to say, before we get to mystery play, can I just say, I didn't know this was a single author-focused theme. I thought it was a single issue. So I spent half that book going, well, I mean, it's a very different tone. When's the Victorian dandy going to show up? <laughs> <laughs> the entire time I'm like, wow, they're really going to have to explain this. I don't know what these 1980s Yorkshire serial killers have to do with an Edwardian fault, but okay. <laughs> uh, uh, before we move on to mystery play, I I, I want to go back to the, the advertisements in these 90s comics. One in particular, the, the Barktood advertisement from the third issue. Which is this weird mix of, like, 50s horror and temporary tattoos that you can get from root beer. Uh, amazing removable quote-unquote body art is the phrasing they use, and that definitely stood out to me as a, a very fun turn of phrase. I, I was just looking at that and going, and like, okay, this is, this is a 17 and up book. Do advertisers know that they're advertising in that? Or are they just saying, oh, it's comic book advertisements? It's like, it's weird to have advertisements for temporary tattoos next to like a full page spl uh, spread of tits. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I, I would love to ha have been an ear in the room when that uh, ad buy was being hammered out. 
But uh, surprisingly, most of the advertisements in this were for other Vertigo comics of the time. Yeah, you can kind of tell like this was a an early issue before like maybe word had gotten around because it was mostly internal ads. Yeah, this was I, we can actually pinpoint how many issues this was in on the Sandman because they're having advertisements for the 50th issue spectacular. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't don't put a better comic in your comic. Like don't put a better movie in your movie. Don't put a better Speaking of Ready Player 1 like when they do the Shining reference. Don't put a. Don't remind people they could be watching a better movie. Don't remind people they could be reading a better comic. <laughs> uh, they could also be watching Ozzy Osbourne live and loud instead. <laughs> uh, of sorry, all I, I, the I, I, live albums to advertise. Sorry, I just had to like do a quick mental thing. Like, is Ozzy Osbourne still alive? <laughs> and I'm gonna settle with if you call that living. Uh, and the Ozzy Osbourne ad has perhaps my favorite tagline, just for its sheer obviousness. If you love it, press play. Ah, <laughs> uh, back when ads just told you how to enjoy something. <laughs> the Sandman. If you love it, turn the page. <laughs> oh, fine. Okay, and in a wildly different tone, we have the mystery play in which um, Morrison tackles themes of inevitability, fate, uh, the fall of mankind, and how many god puns can you make in one book? Yes, yes, I... Again, would you like to take the lead on the summary for this one? <laughs> well, it's a, um, it's a dismal Yorkshire town, uh, but it's the 80s, so that goes without saying, and it's Yorkshire, so that goes without saying. And they are putting on a mystery play, which appears to be mostly about um, sort of a Milton-esque fall of Lucifer, rise of man, paradise lost thing. Um, glad they went with that. Mostly usually... early Bible. Yeah. Though the cross at the end seems to imply that they at least get to the middle of the Bible. Right, right. And, you know, the entire time, I'm glad they went with, you know, mystery play and not the other kind of play Christian communities would put on periodically. <laughs> And rehearsals are going swimmingly. The mayor is involved in some sort of scandal. A local reporter is there on the scene when, oops, someone kills God. Much like uh, Sebastiano's witty line after shooting Lord Lavender, God is dead. Or haven't you heard? <laughs> anyway, our intrepid uh, reporter character eventually meets up with this police detective who's trying to solve the case of who killed god the actor playing god and it's sort of fitting into and he's he's sort of obsessed with trying to figure out how things work and he does crossword puzzles but when you look at his crossword puzzles like they make no sense i thought for a minute it might be like names of demons but no no luck and uh, you forgot to mention his uh his name frank carpenter uh Bit of a yeah. uh, I, I, bit of an in joke for you, Christ heads out there, for for you Bible fans, <laughs> for those of you on the Bible Wiki, <laughs> Bible.fandom.wikia. <laughs> uh, what is religion if not? Never mind. Let's not go there. Uh, so he's attempting to solve it. He's hoping like if he can make this right, he can figure it out. But it's this very confusing case. There's a Saint Catherine's wheel left behind and um there's a, an escaped mental patient who they think may be doing these murders um because that's not uh problematic or related to victorian uh, uh explanations for oh a crazy person did um and uh, long story short it turned before out... they invented being afraid of butlers that was their explanation <laughs> wow i was just like a crazy guy or an ape if you're poe or if you're Sandman Mystery Theater, a woman who's kind of like an ape, I guess. <laughs> anyway, there's a fear, suspicion, and doubt. Uh, everyone talks about how the town is basically dying and they need to put on this play because it's the one thing that'll cheer up the spirits of this dying uh, mining town, I guess, or factory town. And uh, long story short, the detective was not a detective. And it probably should have been pointed out, at no point does he interact with any of the other police. Yeah, see, he also doesn't seem to actually interview the suspect that's brought in. He just sits there, 
has a, a, a dialogue with this devil character and then walks out nauseous. Yeah, and yeah, spoiler alert, he's the guy who escaped the mental hospital. And it's strongly implied he just sort of walked in and everyone just assumed he was a de- detective, is the feeling I got. Yeah, he he escaped. He found this detective in a crashed car, basically took his outfit and badge and basically passed himself off. Right. Because, again, Hitman level, once you have the disguise on, no one actually looks at your face. (laughs) Uh, And and with his long hair, no one could check to see if he had a barcode on the back of his head. We all have barcodes on the back of our head. I'm sorry, so, I've, yes, been, he... I've been trapped in the house for a year. I've been playing a lot of video games. Uh, same here. But yes, he is He is found out. The detective uh, searches through the microfiche and finds out that he is the raincoat killer, which I'm pretty sure is just the killer from... I was going to say Heavy Rain, but no, that's the origami killer. Deadly Premonition is the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> Right, a, and... a murderer slash a child rapist who was locked up. Right, no, and it, he gives the microfiche with that to the journalist who then finds out who he is. And then on the opening day of the play, she fingers him in the crowd and, you know, does the pod person scream, essentially. <laughs> you did it! You brought the birds here! And... The entire town then strings him up on the cross. Oh, and he says at one point that the cross wasn't authentic, but that's what people expect. Heavily implying he knows what kind of cross Christ was crucified on. Uh, He's the one updating the Christ wikia. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, he is is crucified by the town, um, literally, not in a cancel culture way. And then they remark how after that, like, the Japanese factory that was supposed to be their competition never opened. And now, like, the town is more lively and it's it's a bit of a rebirth. Um, and then it ends. So, yeah. He, um, he died to redeem the town. Yeah, he, 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 he died to stop Thatcherism. Because <laughs> literally, if it only took stringing up one detective, I think we could have done it. I mean, if it only took stringing up one nonce, you could probably go into the House of Lords. <laughs> you just pick mostly at random. Uh, and, you know, like th- there's like a wicker man element to it, too. Like, you know, someone is sacrificed to save in, in like an island and its fertility. And there's, of course, the I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say it. Christ analogy of someone being sacrificed to uh, save humanity. And um then it's he doesn't over. even wait to get off the cross before he disappears. Yeah, no, no. I, I want to make sure you people know this is magic. <laughs> and um, yeah, what do we think? What did we think of mystery play? I I enjoyed the art by uh, John J. Muth. This sort of uh, painterly, like a a bit more abstract Alex Ross. But in yeah. terms of story, I found it kind of feeble. It's very thin gruel. Um, I like the parts where you get like the impressions of the town by everybody saying. I thought like, oh, it's a, that's a, like a nice montage device. Uh, I thought it sort of conveyed like the grayness of like these sort of dying northern towns pretty well, which isn't like usually a view you get in comics so much. But um, yeah, it underbaked. Like it, it felt like a slightly more supernatural episode of Midsummer Murders. Yeah, the, the the sort of vibe I got from both of these is that the story was a bit less of a concern than finding a vibe that fit the artist. So like Morrison is working with Steve Ewell, they think, oh, you know, Ewell is good at this sort of like clear line, very dainty style. Something, you know, Victorian with a lot of action would be a, a, a sort of fun thing to do. John J. Muth does these very uh, expressive, very Moody. painterly moody very much so scenes so this sort of detective story that's very religious and existential would be a good way to flex the sort of surreal aspects of his drawing style the sort of scene in the prison where he's talking to the suspect who plays the devil in the play and it goes into this dialogue between the detective and the devil and it's 
it's very visually interesting, even if none of what they're saying really does all that much. Yeah, it's, um, to, to use a line from another uh, stalwart British institution, it's underproofed. Yeah, well, what it's really reminding me of is another Morrison comic from the time, Kid Eternity, which he did with Duncan Fagredo, which, much like the mystery play, is it's very dark and moody, and it's mostly there to let Figredo draw you know, visions of hell and this sort of moody violence. And I will say the mystery play is shorter than Kid Eternity, so that's good. Yeah, I mean, on the upside, both of these, both of these stories are pretty short. Yeah, they were collected into uh, they, they were collected together in a bound volume, and I don't think it hit two hundred pages. Yeah, and they they really tried. I mean, Morrison for Sebastian O wrote like a very obviously inspired by League of Extraordinary Gentlemen like prose timeline of Sebastian's <laughs> life, and you're just looking at this going like, you did a lot of world building for this too. Yeah, I get again. There's there's so both of these types of stories have so many other kinds of like even within the vertigo line you can find better examples of some of these things so it's like just just read those this is this is for like extreme morrison completionist completionists only it's inessential yeah you using the early days of vertigo to sort of poke out okay where can we go with these limitations lifted and we can do um nudity and nonsense Quite a bit of that, yes. Yeah. yeah, just just get all of that out of your just get all of that out of your system now. <laughs> oh, and with that taken care of, what have you been vibing with recently? What's something you've been really enjoying? <laughs> if you couldn't tell, I've been playing the Hitman series for the first time recently, and um, uh, yeah, d- disturbingly good at it. I would say. Uh, oh, is I, is it is this because Hitman Three recently re, yeah, recently released and you've been getting in on that, or is it the 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 sort of first two? I, I'm assuming these are the recent IO Interactive Hitman games. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, three came out and they were like, oh, if you buy three, it has all like the other playable levels. I'm like, okay, I'll do this. I've heard people say good things about it. And then the game is like, hey, 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 do you want to infiltrate the New York Stock Exchange? <laughs> and I was just like, do I? I'm like, please let me slam a banker into a Bloomberg terminal. I just want this one thing. <laughs> uh, like, do you want to go to a weird eyes wide shut party full of billionaires plotting to survive the end of the world? Buddy, my bags are already packed. <laughs> uh, I believe I know which level you're referring to with that second one. And yes, that is a, a very fun uh, environment to explore. Just, just, just a way of like you know, I don't know, creating some sort of plan. One might say a rehearsal. <laughs> uh, I, I've also been playing a lot of video games recently, and one that I've been having a lot of fun with. Uh, it may be a, a sort of lesser-known title. Uh, there's this game called Earthbound. It came out sometime in the '90s. Not a lot of people may have heard of it. But it's become something of a, a cult classic, if you will. Uh, it's this very fun little uh, RPG where you're this kid going out on an adventure. And it has become a classic for its just pure vibes. It is, it's a very bouncy, fun adventure. That also includes the end of the world. Quite. Yeah, it's Peanuts versus the Apocalypse. <laughs> Could not put it better. I think that was actually uh, Lore Schoberg who said that, so I don't want to. I don't want to steal uh, Exer Valor there. Uh, and so, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, I am unfortunately on Twitter at at Levitt Alone, L E A V I T T Alone, and same word LevittAlone.com is where I do art and writing. Although both of those are increasingly infrequent. All right, and you can find me at F-U-C-K-I-N-A-L-P-A-M-A-R-E. You can find our podcast account at at Mature Listeners. I had to check that because I recently changed it from the increasingly outdated at TalksBall. Uh, you can find Shane at T-H-E-S-H-A-N-E-B-L-E-P. And until next time, Tailwinds!
Shut the 